scripture reading for today comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Listen now to the word of the Lord. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Uh, welcome everyone to our service this morning. Um, before uh, I begin, I do want to remind all of you that we are in this uh, season of Lent and that I'm encouraging everyone to give, fast, and pray every Wednesday. Um, this Wednesday, um, <clears throat> we are going to take a offering uh, for uh, relief work that is being done in the Ukraine through our uh, partners, the Presbyterian Disaster Assistance. So rather than giving individually this Wednesday, uh, I'm going to ask you that you come this coming Sunday instead uh, with your offerings so that we can make a collective offering together as a church to the PDA uh, rather than giving individually. So again, uh, the giving this week, uh, unlike uh, the rest of the Lent season, I'm asking you to uh, bring your offerings on Sunday rather than on Wednesday so we can give together uh, as a church uh, for the relief work uh, in Ukraine. I know that many of you uh, wanted to participate in that. Uh, secondly, regarding the fast, um, I think this is a decision some of you have been asking uh, that you need to make with your own families. I know some of you, for health reasons, young children and otherwise, uh, you may not be able to do so. Um, and so please uh, make uh, good choices, uh, faithful, healthy choices uh, with your families. And lastly, uh, for prayer meetings, again, on Wednesday evenings at 9 o'clock, um, I'm asking all of you to join us on Zoom. Uh, we had a very good turnout this past Wednesday, um, but I hope to see more of you. In fact, I hope to see all of you uh, join us for that time uh, together. We will begin reading through the book of Psalms, starting with chapter 1 this Wednesday. And uh, our plan is to read through the entire book of Psalms uh, through the next six Wednesdays of Lent. Um, so please come. Uh, even if you can't make every Wednesday, uh, please come to as many uh, as we can. I was really challenged uh, this week. I had two conversations with uh, two different churches and learned that um, they are both having, uh, one church is having a Zoom meeting uh, for prayers every day at 6 a.m. on Zoom, uh, not just once a week. And another church is actually having 
in-person services every day during the season of Lent. And so I'm just asking you for an hour uh, of your time uh, once a week, you know, because we're not, you know, we're not like the first generation uh, diehard Christians. <laughs> so uh, please join us. And uh, so let's give, fast, and pray together every Wednesday. Uh, please pray with me. Lord, we're so thankful for this day to gather, uh, especially today as we are about to ordain and install uh, Sarah as elder of this congregation. And so God, now help us to hear together a word that you have for her, but also the word that you have for all of us uh, as we consider what it means to be a part of this body together. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we are taking a week off from our uh, walk through the narrative lectionary as we are ordaining and installing uh, Sarah Lee to the office of elder this morning. The ordination and installation of an elder is not only an occasion to be reminded about the role of the elders in the church, but it is also a reminder for all of us about the fundamental characteristics, the quality of our life together as a church. In our reading this morning, uh, Peter outlines for us the requirements, the responsibilities, the rewards of an elder, as well as the response then that is required of all of us. And even though Peter is directing his exhortation to those who are called to the office of elder, his words can also be applied just as easily to be heard by everyone. It's an appeal to everyone who is an elder, someone who is simply older, anyone in a position of servant leadership in the church. So first, the requirement for an elder. In the New Testament, there are several passages that list the requirements or the qualifications for someone to become an elder. In what might be described as a job description, nearly all of the qualifications for an elder are about character. For example, in letters to Timothy and Titus, Paul insists, among other characteristic traits, that an elder must be above reproach, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, gentle, upright, holy, well thought of by outsiders. Just about the only required skill, if we can call it that, is that an elder be able to teach that is be able to instruct others about the faith that they hold. These are all important qualities for an elder to have and we hold our elders to the highest standards in terms of character and integrity. But even before we get into all of that, there is an even more fundamental requirement for an elder according to Peter. In corporations and politics, people are chosen to lead largely by their skill set by their past accomplishments, by their ability to deliver on promises and so on. And some churches, I imagine, may be tempted to do the same in the choosing of their leaders. But before Peter gives his exhortation to his fellow elders, notice that he identifies himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. That's his qualification as a fellow elder. He witnessed Christ's sufferings, his betrayal, his arrest, his beatings, 
He himself contributed to Christ's suffering by denying him three times. And though he ran away when Jesus was arrested, it's hard not to imagine that he st stuck around in the background and witnessed the crucifixion. He repeatedly witnessed Christ's sufferings, but he was also a partaker of the glory that's going to be revealed. He's referring here not only to the transfiguration, which we heard about last time, and the resurrection, which he witnessed, the glory that is to be revealed, but he's also looking forward to sharing in that promised glory when Christ returns. He knows that we shall all be changed and become like him as sons of righteousness. To put it another way, Peter's authority, his qualification as an elder, rests in the fact that he has known Jesus Christ. He speaks as one who has known Jesus, both in his suffering and in his glory. May seem like a no-brainer, but this must be the first qualification for any elder or any leader in the church. Does he or does she know Jesus? Can they testify about the sufferings and the glory of Jesus Christ? Every elder, every parent, everyone who is older, we must be able to pass on this witness to the next generation. Have you known the sufferings and the glories of Jesus? It is our collective responsibility. Ever since Sarah was elected for ordination, she has been preparing for her service by studying the constitution of our denomination with me, the very thrilling books, the Book of Order and the Book of Confessions. But the first thing that she and I did together was to go over her testimony. I invited her to share that again with you today, but she declined. But I wanted to make sure that our elders are reminded before we begin of how God has guided them to this moment and that it is because they have known Jesus Christ that they are called to this office at this time to serve in this way. And it's from this foundation that Peter then lays out the responsibilities of an elder. Peter calls upon elders to shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. I think these, uh, this exhortation to shepherd the flock is especially meaningful because the very last conversation that Peter had with Jesus, Jesus told him, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep, he told him, shepherd my flock. And so Peter here is just, he's passing on the last commands that he received from Jesus himself. Shepherd the flock of God. And notice here that Peter is addressing the elders in the plural. It struck me that in the New Testament, it's always this plurality of elders. For example, in the book of Acts, chapter 14, the pattern that Paul and his companions followed in establishing churches was to appoint elders in the plural in every church with prayer and fasting. In the letter to Timothy, Paul exhorts him to not neglect the gift he has, which was given to him by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on him. Always there is this group of elders. 
It is not the lone charismatic leader leading the church, but rather a group of elders serving together in their shared responsibilities. This plurality is not merely about representation as we think about today in a democratic society, but it allows for, it insists upon this variety, this diversity of giftings by the spirit, a greater accountability and the greater collective wisdom leading to the shepherding of the flock of God. You know, over the years that I've served in this church, this is one of the things that I've been most thankful for, that we've had such a diverse and gifted and strong lay leadership who always remain civil and collegial, even when facing difficult deliberations. You know, the last two years in particular were challenging, and I was so thankful to have the collective wisdom of the elders especially when I was so often unsure of the steps that we needed to take. Now, when Peter calls the group of elders to shepherd the flock of God, it's one of those illustrations that unfortunately none of us have any real life experience with. Today, I think Jesus might have used some other examples like maybe a kindergarten teacher or a nurse rather than shepherding a flock. But in the days of Jesus and those of us who have read scriptures for a long time, we know uh, that in ancient Israel, everyone understood uh, what it was to be a shepherd and the image of God as a shepherd can be found scattered throughout the scriptures, most memorably in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And because the Lord is my shepherd who is good and powerful, the sheep have no needs, no fear, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? Because the Lord, the good shepherd, is with me. And so Jesus picked up on this theme repeatedly throughout his teachings. In Matthew 9, for example, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. They were helpless. And Jesus told parables about sheep, including the one about the shepherd who left 99 sheep behind to go looking for that one lost sheep. Perhaps most notably in John 10, he said that he is the good shepherd. And when Jesus makes this declaration, I am the good shepherd, it's more than making a kind of just comparison or analogy. He's making this radical claim. He's taking upon himself the title that God himself claimed, the Lord is my shepherd, and Jesus is saying, I am that good shepherd. Jesus is the Lord shepherd. He goes on to explain that the shepherd knows and loves his sheep, and the sheep know the shepherd and the voice of the shepherd and have absolute confidence in him. That is the covenantal relationship between the shepherd and the sheep, and Jesus promises that he is the good shepherd who will stand steadfast by his sheep, will defend the sheep, feed the sheep, care for the sheep, and even against wolves, he would lay down his life if necessary. And so the call to shepherd the flock of God is to know the sheep, to have compassion for them, to lead them, to feed them, to find them when they're lost, to defend them when no one else will, and to lay down your life for them. 
That's what a good shepherd does. And though none of us, none of us can do this perfectly or even adequately, that is a task to which elders and all who are older are called to. And Peter goes on then to offer this, these three descriptions of how the shepherding should be done. Not under compulsion, but willingly. You know, shepherding, like parenting or just being older, requires a lot of unrewarding work, like cleaning up. It can lead to resentment and criticism toward those who aren't helping. But it would be pretty terrible to have elders who feel like they have to do it because no one else wants to do it or because they felt pressure by members of the congregation or, or in any other way are being forced to serve against their will. Peter says they should not do it for shameful gain, but eagerly. Again, it would be terrible to have elders who want the title of an elder or for social status or somehow to use the office of elder for financial or personal gain. Elders must not be motivated by self-interest, but serve with an eagerness and joy, regardless of personal sacrifice. And not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And Peter probably here remembers what Jesus had told them. Do you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. They are domineering. But it shall not be so with you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. That is the example of gentle servanthood that the elders are to display. And furthermore, this phrase, those in your charge, uh, I think it's better translated as the uh, New American Standard has it, those allotted to your charge, those given to your charge. In other words, the sheep do not belong to the elders. They belong to the chief shepherd. It is the flock of God. But this particular flock of sheep, this church, this graceway, has been allotted to this group of elders. You've been assigned here to shepherd this flock. The members of this congregation are not selected by you. It's not like a it's not like a sports draft where you get to pick the best ones that you want for your flock. This church has been assigned, given to you by God. And it's important for us all to remember that God has brought us together and those who are older have the responsibility to care for the sheep because they belong to God. You are given the stewardship of what belongs to God. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. <clears throat> you might be aware that in the New Testament, uh, there are five crowns that are mentioned. The crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, the incorruptible crown, the crown of life, and here, the unfading crown of glory. Now, I'm not really sure uh, what it means to receive a crown. I certainly don't think it's something that, you know, when we get to heaven, we're going to get a crown and we get to wear it and you get to kind of flex on all the people who don't have a crown as fancy as yours. I don't think that's what it's talking about here. Perhaps it's a way for Peter to just encourage the elders to let them know that this is another way of perhaps saying 
to those who are faithful in their calling, whatever that may be, will enter into the glory of God and will be honored for that work. Maybe it's a more tangible version of saying or, or, or of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Whatever it is, real or symbolic, there is this promise of gift, this gift for those who shepherd the flock of God in accordance with the word of God. Now, having stated the requirements, the responsibilities, and the reward for an elder, Peter then addresses the younger, those who are under the authority of the elders, that is the church. He calls on those who are younger to be subject to the elders. To be subject doesn't mean to be, uh, you know, to blindly follow or to never disagree. Rather, it's to have this attitude of respect, of deference, as they lead in servant leadership. The Apostle Paul will write similarly in 1 Thessalonians 5, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Right? We're to esteem them because of their work in the Lord. Likewise, we find in the letter to the Hebrews, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Don't make their work so difficult where they're groaning and grumbling. They have to account for their ministry to God. Then finally, Peter concludes his exhortation with a word for everyone, for the whole church, to each and every one of us, regardless of our age or of our title. He calls for mutual humility. He writes, clothe yourselves, all of you, all of you, with humility toward one another. You know, today, <clears throat> we still judge people by the kind of clothing that they wear. I know it's a little bit harder um, because it's such a much more of a, an informal country um, and dress codes are pretty relaxed in most places. And so just because someone is wearing a, a t-shirt and, and jeans, um, it does, you don't know if they're wealthy or if, you know, you, you don't necessarily know what they are by uh, the kind of clothing that they wear. Uh, but in ancient times, but in ancient times, what you wore clearly identified your social status. Like there was no mistaking about it. You could spot someone by the clothing that they wore and you knew exactly you know, where they belonged and where you belonged, whether you could talk to them you know, or whether you had a bow to them and, and so on. And so here Peter says, be identifiable as a people that is marked by humility. You know, a, a humble person is not someone who's like insecure or self-hating or, or low esteem. It's to have the, the right estimation of who you are that is before God, to know your position in the presence of God, that you are mortal. And therefore, to have this kind of absolute trust in God. 
It is to understand, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. You see? The humility isn't like, it's not anything that comes from me, but it's to know that our sufficiency, that all we need for this ministry is from God. Humble people know who they are and whose they are. That is why God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble because only the humble acknowledge their need for grace. Let me close uh, with this word picture. Peter makes a very interesting word choice here. When he writes, clothe yourselves, <clears throat> this is not the ordinary word for, um, you know, put some clothes on uh, or get dressed. Um, it's a word that only appears once here uh, in the Bible. And it, does, and it means put on your clothes, but it has this uh, additional aspect of put on your clothes and fasten it. Tie, you know, tie your clothes on. So, for example, something like an apron. Right, so you put it on, right? Clothe yourselves. And this particular word is, is clothe yourselves and tie the knot. That's kind of the, the sense of what it is. It's not just to put on, but it's to, to tie it on. Uh, that's the picture, the word picture that uh, Peter has for us. So this word was used, for example, uh, with slaves because they had to tie on, they had to fasten a white scarf to identify themselves uh, or a white apron as a slave versus a freed person or a noble or anything like that. So it was an identity marker, like this is who I am. And so he's saying, tie this knot of humility around you. Put on this humility like, like a garment. And you know, like when you see me now, like I've never seen Pastor Dave in an apron, right? At home, my kids rarely, see, like once in a while when I'm barbecuing, they'll see me put something like this on, right? This is unusual. This is irregular. It's rare. But Peter is saying, put it on every day. So it becomes your identity so that people can identify you as a person of humility. Come on in, kids. You know, and I think here, Peter might be remembering Thursday night with Jesus. When Jesus got up from the table, you remember, at the Last Supper, and he took the towel and he wrapped it around himself. It's a different word, but it's the same idea, this action of tying the knot of humility, of service. And that's what we are called to do together. I was thinking that maybe in future ordinations, we should have everyone bring an apron in and we'll all tie the knot together as a sign of our mutual humility toward one another. This is our common call as a church. And so again, I would challenge you and exhort you to recommit yourselves, to recommit ourselves to each other this day, to clothe ourselves, to tie the knot in humble mutual service. Please pray with me.
Lord, I'm so uh, thankful for this day. I'm thankful for all those who have played the role and continue to be an older brother or sister to someone else in this congregation. Whether they're five years old or 50 years old, that they have been an older person to someone else. I'm also especially thankful today, Lord, for every elder who has served this church, for every elder who is serving, and today for Sarah as she prepares to serve. God, we ask that you would help us to be rooted in our relationship with you, to keep on bearing the witness of your suffering, death, and resurrection, even as we participate and look forward to your glory. Help us to bear faithful witness in the way we all conduct our lives, in the way we live our life together as a church. May it be characterized by mutual humble service in emulation of our chief shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ, and may we pass on that faith to the next generation. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.